Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. of Kobol. We, we the tribes of man, are now at war with the Cylons. Our only hope, the Blood and Chrome podcast. We will fight. We will prevail. And we will win this war with the Cylons. The Blood and Chrome podcast promises you that. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome, hello and welcome to show 177. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, hope everyone is fine and dandy. Straight into today's show, I'll tell you what's coming up. We have an interview with the amazing Alan Dean Foster. Fact article comes from JJ Campanella. Then we have an interview with Jason Sanford. He's going to tell about the Story South Million Writers Award. Then the main fiction comes from David D. Levine, A Passion for Art. Next up is a little interview I did with John Dobbs that I actually forgot to put on last week's show. So there you go. Then we have part two of How to Run a Con by Michael Swanick. Today's narrator is the fantastic Randall Swartz over there at Floss Weekly, who's done a fantastic narration of A Passion for Art. It's a short month this month, so it is the end of the month. So this is art. Did anyone see the art? It is by Robin Moyer. Robin lives over there in Canada. Profession art director, lead background painter. I'll put a link on to Robin's site. Please go over there and have a look. It is just purely a stunning bit of artwork. So I'm very pleased today to be joined by Alan Dean Foster. I mean, this guy must have mapped out my childhood with his stories there. He penned the original Star Wars novel and Star Trek The Motion Picture. So nice of you to come on board Starship Sofa. 
it's a pleasure to be here. Now, we're actually, we've got you on to really talk about your book, Predators I Have Known, which is like totally miles different. This is really your experiences traveling around the normal world, looking at all predators and all dangerous animals. Am I right in thinking? That's pretty much it, yeah. But it, it's actually, I keep trying to explain to people, and they look at me blankly when I do, that it's, it's not all that different from the other books I've written. The, the only difference is that these are places I've actually been able to go physically and encounters I've been able to have in reality. And writing about them, I write about them exactly the same way I write about places that I can't go, except in my imagination, and creatures that I have to invent. Is this something that's just really started in your life, or is this something that you've been doing since you know since you were able to travel to these places? Well, I always wanted to be Sir Richard Francis Burton, but it's the wrong century for that sort of thing. But I've given it my best shot. I made my first trip overseas in 1973, and that's uh, that's all I ever really wanted to do was travel and see the world. And see other worlds, but I've only been able to do that, as I said, in my imagination. And uh, I, I expect to keep on doing it until I drop over, or until one of the creatures that I want to see uh, eats me. <laughs> How, now, is this book really all all to do with predators, or is it is it a mixture of you know not so dangerous animals and dangerous animals? When I, when I was trying to come up with an idea for the book, because people have asked me for years to write a travel book. I, I could never think of a proper approach. I didn't want to do one of these books where you, you start saying things like, here we are today at the Tower of London, and over here is the corner where Henry so-and-so did such and such. And then it occurred to me that everybody likes animal stories. And to pump up the drama, if you will, I thought, well, I've, I've been fortunate enough, or in some cases, unfortunate enough, to have encounters with uh, creatures which are not only not afraid of us, but regard us as food. So there are a couple of related instances in the book where I talk about creatures like elephants, for example, who are not carnivores and not predators, but who are certainly as dangerous as many meat-eaters. And I kind of threw them in the book for a little bit of balance. But certainly 80 to 90% of the book involves animals that uh, were perfectly happy to have us for lunch as uh, as Hannibal Lecter would say. And am I right? Have you ever put yourself in danger to, to try and get a little bit closer, or is that n never the case? Usually, no. Uh, sensible people, who are the ones who survive to write these kinds of books, don't do that. You might put yourself in situations that other people who never do this sort of thing regard as, as terribly dangerous, as Steve Irwin did, for example. But what people need to think is it's usually the creatures that you don't respect and that you don't take care with who get you. Uh, it's not the ones with the big teeth and the big claws. There have been a couple of instances where I suppose you could say that I stepped over the line a little bit in order to get closer to a certain animal uh, and, and improve the encounter. Uh, but you can get, for example, as, as close as an inch to a a rising column of army ants who would be perfectly happy to dismember you piece by piece <laughs> because they're largely blind and they work by smell. And as long as you don't make actual physical contact, you can get extraordinarily close to them. Another example would be swimming with giant otters in the Pantanal in Brazil. Most people think of otters as uh, 
furry, fun-loving little creatures, and they are. And the giant otters of South America are also cute and fun-loving and cuddly, but they're much longer. You're talking about an animal that grows up to two meters long and, and, uh, and 40 kilos. And they're quite capable, uh, just like the army ants, of dismembering you. These are animals that eat piranhas for breakfast. And any animal that eats piranhas uh, certainly has my respect. But it was something that I had always dreamed of doing. This is my favorite animal on the planet, if I had to pick one. And the opportunity arose, and I asked the guide I was with, who then in turn asked the, the local fisherman, has anybody ever done this? And they said no, and kind of smiled. And I'm sure they would have been perfectly happy to see me taken, taken apart by the happy otters. It's a long way from wind in the willows. Uh, but it didn't work out that way. It worked out beautifully, and was one of the, one of the great one of the great animal encounters of my life. But if you don't put yourself in that kind of a situation, if you're not willing to take at least a small step over the line of complete safety, then those sorts of things never happen. And life is meant to be lived. And uh, there are there are times when you just have to take that chance. There are far more dangerous things that you could do. Uh, walking around say, downtown Washington, D.C., or uh, Manchester, certain parts at 2 o'clock in the morning would be far more dangerous. Is, is the book then, you, you know, your kind of mem or your thoughts from and memories from when you started traveling, or have you just started collecting, thinking, right, I'm going to, every time now I go abroad and, and check out something, some wildlife, I'll put it into the book. It, has it been, is this a collection of your memories from a, a long time? Well, it is certainly going back to the 70s, but when I had these encounters, I, these were things I did because this is what I wanted to do with my life. It never occurred to me as I was doing them that they might be of interest to other people or that other than my immediate family, or that they might come together to form a book someday. What I did think was, like every other aspect of my travels, is that they might provide bits and pieces of the bases for stories. And indeed, they have. Uh, there are specific encounters that are in the book that led to specific chapters, if you will, in, in my science fiction and fantasy. But as far as taking the actual incidents and putting them together in a nonfiction book, uh, I had never thought of doing that until very recently. What about, you know, when you, you, you go off to, to see some wildlife or anything like that, do you, how do you collect your, your data? Are you taking photographs and videos, or is it all, you know, with the writing it down on a computer? I originally started shooting film, 8mm uh, film, because I wanted uh, sound and motion as well as the visuals. Again, this was for research purposes. This was, I was thinking, for example, when I was in Africa, if I'm in Africa, it would be wonderful to have uh, film and then later video uh, of where I was. It would be much easier to recall than, for example, uh, looking down in a 19th century style written journal and trying to decipher and bring back all of those memories just from the written words. Although I do also keep a small daily journal for statistics and numbers and certain things that I don't just want to put on video. Is there is there anything, you know, apart from the otter encounter, is there anyone, any one encounter that really stands out for you as what, like a, a highlight of your traveling career? Well, it would be difficult to top uh, being in the water with great white sharks. <laughs> this was, I think most people would go along with that. That was in 1991, back when not a lot of people did this sort of thing, when there were far fewer people offering these sorts of cage encounters. I was in a cage. 
And what made it so exceptional, other than the fact that uh, it was great white sharks, was one particular moment. <clears throat> we were very lucky. I was with a fellow named Rodney Fox, who's probably the world's uh, leading expert on great white sharks and certainly the world's most famous great white shark attack survivor. And we were off South Australia, a place called the North Neptune Islands, and we were very fortunate. Uh, some of these trips you can go out for days and days and even weeks at a time and not see a single shark. And we had sharks appear on the first day, and they stayed with us for the entire week we were out there. And from the beginning, after you get over the first shock and fascination, it's like seeing a dinosaur alive to see this creature. Uh, once that initial sensation was passed, you have two cages in the water, which can hold up to four divers each. So it's a little crowded, and everyone is looking and not paying attention to anyone else. And you get relaxed right away when you realize that, that you're perfectly safe, which you are. And I had a day, the fourth day, I think it was, when my mask started to flood, and I, my diving mask, and I, I couldn't keep the water out of it. And I kept popping up to the top of the cage, which has a door on top that you enter from, to try and clear my mask and then go back down. Well, as I was doing this little jack-in-the-box act, everyone else was staying down and using up their air, and they gradually got out as they used up their air. And it reached a point where I finally got my mask sealed properly, uh, and I went back down, and I looked around, and I realized I was the only one left in the water. Everyone else had gotten out to go have lunch. And everything suddenly changed. It was very strange and very eerie. I had felt very comfortable surrounded by my fellow humans before, even though if something had gone drastically wrong, no one would have been able to do anything. But suddenly, being alone in the water with the sharks, I had this literal flashback to hundreds of thousands of years ago where I'm the lone crow magnet sitting in a cave by himself listening to the saber-tooths howling outside. It completely changed my mental perspective on where I was and what I was doing. And I found myself doing all those things that I said I wasn't going to do, looking behind me all the time, looking down because the bottom of the cage is just, just thin bars, just like the rest of the cage, to see where my toes were because you don't wear fins when you're in the cage. You have no place to swim, so there's no reason to wear fins. Now, all of those, you know, that, that little bit of terror crept in. But at the same time, it's, it's like the world's highest roller coaster. You're frightened, but at the same time, you're so fascinated having such a good time, you don't want it to stop. And I stayed down there by myself probably for another 25 minutes, just watching the sharks uh, gently cruise back and forth and look at you. And they do look at you. Hey, honestly, Alan, you, you sound a brave man. <laughs> <laughs> would, would, you, no. would you class yourself as a brave man? Um, no. The, the brave people are the ones, the real scientists who do real science, who go out and sit in the jungle for a year in a blind in a tree being consumed by mosquitoes and ants to get five minutes of footage or ten minutes of data on uh, an unusual species of monkey. That, that takes real bravery to endure those kinds of conditions. You know, or evil can evil, if you want. You know, that's, if you're going to risk your life, and I mean really risk your life, uh, doing something for a living, that's bravery. What I did is very carefully calculated and uh, was not really pushing, unless you count the otter encounter, not really pushing any boundaries. Uh, it, it looks different on television, I suppose, because they take that, that year of footage that some people have gone out, like BBC film crews who I've met in places like New Guinea, 
who've gone out and sat in the jungle and endured the terrible heat and humidity and the insect bites and the chance of contracting some unnameable disease. Uh, when you do that, that's, that's real bravery. What I do is I go out and I have my experience, and it's as planned out and as carefully calculated as I can make it. Uh, that's just desire. I don't consider that particularly brave. But, on the other hand, someone whose exotic idea of a trip or a vacation is to go to Disney World for four days would probably might consider it otherwise. You know, you, you've wrote oodles and hun, you know, not hundreds of books, but lots and lots of books. Is this one, though, special to you? Well, it's not my first nonfiction writing. I've published a large number of articles over the years on everything from space travel to diving to movie reviews. But it's my first nonfiction book. And not only for that reason, but also because it encompasses such a large part of my life, then yes, it is very special to me. Also, the the book version that's available for things like uh, iPad, for example, not only has uh, some special video footage that the uh, publishing company, Open Road Media, sent a crew out to my house to shoot, but it also includes bits and pieces of that video that I took over the years that I was telling you about earlier. So people who are able to access that in that version of the ebook will be able to see shots of otters and lions and tigers uh, that I took. And it, it's an interesting way of illustrating a book that I didn't think about when I was shooting this footage in the first place. That it is. That's an amazing, you know, just the way technology is going now. You know, all your archives and now everyone can share them. Do you know? Yes, and nobody thought about that when they were doing this sort of thing. I was just, in fact, when Open Road Media uh, uh, acquired the book, they didn't even know that the footage existed until after the fact. So it was just kind of a little bonus for everyone. I wish more of it could have been included, but uh, we're not making a film, we're making a book. So, When when is the book out then, Alan? Well, the book is out on the 22nd. Right. Well, there you go. Honestly, I'm so looking forward to that. Is there anything, you know, have you got any sights on in the horizon What you're thinking, um, you know, I, I still need to tick a few boxes, tick a few animal boxes, what I haven't seen yet? Oh, there's so much to see. <laughs> I mean, it's a small planet, but it's a very diverse one. Uh, I need to go to Tibet. Uh, I've seen uh, Tibetan wolves and, and red pandas and snow leopards in Darjeeling, but they were in a breeding center. And I'd love to try and see them in the wild. Uh, I have a professor at Far Eastern University in in, uh, in Siberia who's invited me to come look for Siberian tigers. Uh, there's just so much to see. You could go, as as some of the uh, scientists and, and videographers I've mentioned, do and go and sit in some place like New Guinea for a year if you could get someone to fund you and find new species. I'd love to have the time to do some real science, but there's only so much time, and uh, real scientists are better at real science than I am. So I'll do my job of turning them into stories and, and anecdotes and memories and let the scientists get on with their job. But there's, I, I, there's tons of stuff that I haven't seen yet that I'd love to see, and as long as I'm physically able to do so... Um, I hope I hope to be able to do so. My last trip was in October. It was last October to Borneo. I had never been to Borneo. I'd read about Borneo all my life. It was just a place that I, I ended up going around numerous times. And it was another wonderful trip. But one caveat, the world is changing very quickly. Uh, we have a highway all the way across South America now. The airports in places like northern Borneo are the equal of any in Europe or the United States. 
Everybody's got a cell phone. And uh, if you want to see these sorts of things in the wild, I suggest that people who are interested in that get out and do so before it's gone. I'm not optimistic. Oh, it's, uh, it's rapidly changing this world as well. Is Well, the elephant in the room is population, and, and nobody wants to talk about overpopulation, whether it's in Africa or South America or India or any place else. It's very difficult to tell a starving man that uh, he shouldn't shoot the tiger that's worth worth what he would make in 20 years of hard labor. But uh, someone has to make those decisions or there won't be any tigers left to see. You know, talking about, you know, like people in different cultures, is it for you going to see the animals or do you get a kick out as well of, of seeing different people in different cultures and how they live as well? Oh, absolutely. And that might be another book someday. Uh, it's It's wonderful to immerse yourself. When I travel, I, I generally go by myself. Uh, sometimes I'll go with a friend, but that's very rare. And by, in going by yourself, you get a chance, uh, particularly if you take the time to learn a little bit of the language, to meet people on their own level. Uh, no one likes to see a tour bus with 50 people pull up and get out and start shooting pictures. And I don't care who you are or where you live. It's, uh, you immediately recoil. And it's no different anywhere else. But if you're willing to get out by yourself, and particularly in a car or a train, and just mix with local people, then you will learn things about the local culture and about other parts of humanity that you'll never learn, no matter how much television you watch, uh, even if it's good television, or how many books you read. Uh, just to give one example, uh, traveling through India, if you go into a McDonald's in India, I'm not sure this was the cultural high point of the trip, but it was one I'd never read in any guidebook or seen on television. If you go into McDonald's in India, uh, it's divided down the middle. Uh, one side is the regular McDonald's, and the other side is the vegetarian McDonald's. And the people who work on the regular McDonald's side are not allowed to have any contact with the people on the vegetarian side because they might contaminate something over there. Uh, that may, again, that's not a cultural high point, but uh, it, it's something that uh, you know you wouldn't get otherwise. And that's the sort of thing that you end up using as inspiration for a passage in a book or a character, or a setting. It's the things that you don't expect to find. Well, Alan, honestly, it's, it's been lovely talking to you. What, what a rich experience you've had through your life. It just sounds amazing. Thank you so much for coming on Starship Sofa. It's been my pleasure, and uh, all I can tell people is anybody can do this. Uh, I, I didn't have uh, someone leave me 20 million pounds, and I didn't... Uh, you know, I didn't have to have somebody take me. All you have to do is go buy the plane ticket and go do it, if you want to do it, badly enough. Well, just one last question then, Alan. Where, where next? Where are you going to next? <laughs> You'll find this hilarious. I find it somewhat hilarious. But there may be a concert by the BBC in London in July. <laughs> and there's one piece of music that I travel anywhere in the world to see played live. It's Havergal Bryan's First Symphony, which they just did in Australia. But they did it on December 22nd, and I can't leave my wife at Christmas time, so I didn't go. But if the concert comes off in July, then I'll be in London in July. There we go. Not terribly exotic, I don't <laughs> think, but potentially dangerous. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, we've got some uh, right animals over here. Alan, listen, take good care. Thank you so much for coming on board. That was a real pleasure. There you go. Do pop over and check out Alan's book there. It is, honestly, it is fascinating. <laughs> Thank you.
Next up we have the JJ Campanella Science News. Jim Squire. Greetings and salutations, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this February 2011 Science News Update. Hi, hello, how are you, how you doing? I'm your host for this evening's off-kilter distractions, Jim Campanella. Let's get this show on the road. First, an update on the apparently never-ending saga of exoplanets. This new exoplanet, Kepler-10b, is still not quite Earth-size. It's four and a half times the mass of Terra and about 40% larger diameter. However, that is still a record for the smallest exoplanet yet, and it is the first exoplanet to be absolutely solid that's been found. The planet was discovered by NASA's Kepler spacecraft and the team doing the study of its data. Dr. Natalie Batala of San Jose State University reported on the new planet January 10th at the winter meeting of the American Astronomical Society. She said at the meeting, quote, The planet is likely to be partially molten, and it is too hot to contain liquid water or support life as known on Earth. But its mass and diameter are known to such high accuracy that the object is the first unquestionably rocky planet that humanity has ever seen. Unquote. Planetary scientists and xenobiologists are especially interested in finding rocky planets like this one because chemical reactions that form the building blocks of life may happen most readily on solid surfaces as opposed to, say, a place made up mostly of hot gases. Well, duh, as my four-year-old might say. Batala said, quote, The more rocky planets we can find, the better place we will be to understand the subset of planets that are in the habitable zone and what factors define that habitable zone, unquote. The measurements made by Kepler's team reveal that Kepler-10b must be composed entirely of solid silicate and metal grains. Batala reported that the planet is likely to have a higher metal content than Earth, yielding a density similar to, well, a chunk of iron. Temperatures there they calculate could get nearly high enough to melt iron. Kepler-10b appears to be a scorched world with oceans of lava on the side facing the star, where estimated surface temperatures reach about, well, 1,500 degrees Celsius. Not exactly your summer home. To me, that sounds a heck of a lot less like Earth than the worst neighborhoods of, well, Mercury. Not that the research group is too full of itself, but another member of the team, Dr. Jeffrey Marcy of the University of California, said, quote, this discovery ranks as among the most profound scientific discoveries in human history. Kepler-10b will go into every textbook worldwide. Well, only time will tell if that's actually true or not. The next story is for my students listening to this, or any students in general. When I was a student, I certainly did not look forward to exams. But at the same time, I did not have panic attacks every time... I was presented with a test. I did know people who actually ended up throwing up in bathrooms before exams. Now, I know lots of students do have that problem and do freak out whenever an exam is put in front of them. And this type of problem leads to, quote, choking, unquote, as they call it in athletics, when a talented individual psychs themselves out from their fear and does not live up to their capabilities. Well, in the January 14th issue of the journal Science, Psychologists, Drs. Gerardo Ramirez 
and Sian Baylock of the University of Chicago propose a method that may help students with testing fears. The authors have suggested that writing about unspoken fears of failure and related anxieties lets students reevaluate their concerns and keep those concerns at bay during a test. Ramirez and Baylock call this a Heimlich maneuver for choking under pressure. Writing down test-related worries about 10 minutes before taking a major exam appears to dislodge those concerns and clear the way for higher achievement. Over two consecutive school years at an Illinois high school, Ramirez and Baylock had teachers randomly assign one of two writing exercises to a total of 106 ninth graders about to take final exams in biology. Each student spent 10 minutes writing thoughts and feelings about the upcoming exam or a description of a biology topic that they suspected wouldn't be on the exam. On questionnaires administered six weeks before the final exam, 54 students had reported constant worries about taking and potentially failing exams. Among test-anxious students, those who wrote about exam-related feelings scored an average of 6% higher on the final than those who wrote about biology topics. Expressive writers received a B-plus average on the final versus a B-minus for the biology writers. Warriors who wrote about their feelings scored as highly on the final as students who reported few or no concerns about the tests. Anxious students had scored about 6% below relatively unworried peers on three biology midterm exams leading up to the final, a deficit apparently erased by writing about their test anxieties. Neither writing exercise led to higher scores among students with few test concerns. In a separate lab experiment, Ramirez and Baylock gave low-pressure and then high-pressure math tests to 47 college students of, quote, comparable math ability, unquote. By the way, I would love to know exactly what that means. I've never seen 47 college students with comparable math abilities at all. Anyway, on the low-pressure tests, students were told to do their best. On the high-pressure tests designed to inflate test anxiety, volunteers were told that their scores would determine how much money experimenters gave them and a partner. Participants who spent 10 minutes writing their thoughts about a high-pressure test before taking it raised their scores substantially over what they achieved on the low-pressure test. But compared with the results of the low-pressure test, scores dropped markedly on the high-pressure test for students who wrote about another emotional event in their lives or who wrote nothing. Despite the fact that these two researchers represent my alma mater, and I do not want to sound like a stick in the mud, I am quite skeptical about most of this. It smacks of Freudianism and the so-called talking cure, or in this case, I guess you'd call it the writing cure. And you will have to forgive me, but I'm, I'm too much of a biologist to be a Freudian. I'm just too much of a believer in the mechanics of neurobiology to just sit back and accept this result at face value. Please, doctors Ramirez and Baylock. What is the biological basis for this phenomenon you have witnessed? I feel like you have only gone halfway to your destination here. And worse yet, I'm reminded of those psi experiments conducted by the good Dr. Bem with less than well thought out statistics. I would love to see a more serious statistical analysis done with this data before I throw in my support and start telling my students to write their little hearts out 
to ease their anxiety before an exam. The next story will sound like it is straight out of one of Tony's science fiction stories that are presented here from week to week, and truth be told, I was a bit floored by it. Quantum entanglement is a strange phenomenon in which two or more particles become so deeply linked to one another that they literally share the same existence. That leads to some counterintuitive effects, particularly when entangled particles become widely separated. When that happens, a measurement on one immediately influences the other, regardless of the distance between them. And more amazingly, it happens instantaneously and faster than the speed of light. Take that, Einstein. This weird instantaneous action at a distance has profound implications about the nature of reality, but a clear understanding of it still eludes physicists. Now, doctors Jay Olson and Timothy Rolfe at the University of Queensland in Australia report in the January issue of the journal Quantum Physics that they've discovered a new type of entanglement that extends not through space, but through time. It's temporal quantum entanglement. Just think about that for a second and try not to think, wow. Now, this is not my field, so please bear with me as I try to explain it using the author's descriptions. I am not even sure I understand them entirely, so please do not write me with criticism if you are a physicist. I'm doing my best here with a complex field that's way beyond my own. Olson and Ralph begin their explanation by describing a simplified universe consisting of a single dimension of space and one of time. In a single dimension of space and time, it's easy to plot the universe on a plane with the x-axis corresponding to the spatial dimension and the y-axis corresponding to time. If the present is the origin of the graph, then the future, that is the space you can reach at sublight speeds, forms a wedge that is symmetric about the y-axis. Your past, that is the space you could have arrived from at sublight speeds, is a mirror image of this wedge reflected in the x-axis. When two particles are present, both sitting on the axis, their wedges will overlap in the future and the past. This has a simple meaning. These particles could have interacted in the past and could do so again in the future, but only in the areas of overlap. Olson and Rolf say that conventional quantum entanglement cuts across this world quite literally. It acts across the x-axis, linking particles instantly in time and in defiance of the boundaries of these wedges and the speed of light. What Olson and Rolf show is that entanglement can just as easily work along the y-axis too. In other words, entanglement is so deeply enmeshed in the universe that a measurement in the past has an automatic influence on the future. Well, that may sound pretty obvious. I can hear the wheels turning out there in your heads in podcast land. Isn't that how the universe works, you're saying to yourself? But this isn't just plain ordinary vanilla cause and effect, like drop the ball and it falls. There are weird little twists to this phenomenon. What kinds of twists? Rolf and Olson describe an experiment in which a qubit is sent into the future. If I remember correctly, a qubit is a quantum computer bit. It can be represented either by a zero or one capable of being carried by the particle in both states until it's measured or resolved. These will be the basis for quantum computing in the next 20 years, by the way. 
So a detector acts on a qubit and then generates a classical message describing how this particle can be detected. Then, at some point in the future, another detector at the same position in space receives this message and carries out the required measurement, and thereby they've reconstructed the qubit. Well, here's the twist. Olson and Rolf show that the detection of the qubit in the future has to be symmetric in time with its creation in the past. They say, quote, if the past detector was active at a quarter to 12, then the future detector must wait to become active at precisely a quarter past 12 in order to achieve entanglement. For that reason, they call this process teleportation in time. But how is this different from ordinary existence? I mean, after all, think about it. We're all time travelers, and we're moving into the future at the same rate. What is so special about Olson and Rolf's route? The answer is that Olson and Rolf's teleportation provides a shortcut into the future. What they're saying is, is that it's possible to travel into the future without being present during the time between, well, at least for that particle. Just as in quantum teleportation, which occurs across space instantaneously with no regard to the speed of light, quantum temporal teleportation occurs across time without any regard for the speed of time. I mean, that's a fascinating scenario that immediately raises lots of questions. One of the first that springs to mind is, what advantage might we get from this process? Might it be possible, for example, to make short-lived particles live longer by teleporting them into the future? For that matter, could you send a message from the past into the future? I mean, we do this all the time. I'm doing exactly that right now. I mean, I'm alone in a room, and yet I'm speaking to you. I'm assuming that you will hear it in the future. The difference, again, would be the fact that the message would be passed along instantaneously into the future. I'm not as sure what the value of that is or exactly what it would mean, but it sure would be pretty amazing. Now, I'm not even sure this is possible, but given the graphic description that Olson and Rolf give us, why can't we send a message the other way? Why can't we send a quantum qubit along the other axis into the past? That would mean that we could send messages back in time if somebody had a receiver. I mean, does that mean that Olson and Rolf should already be on the lookout for messages from 2012? It boggles the mind if you start to think about it. It's not clear what any of these experiments would mean. Neither is it clear exactly how such experiments might even be done. Although presumably temporal teleportation shouldn't be very different to the type of teleportation that's done in labs all over the world today as a matter of routine. In fact, Olson and Rolf say that the temporal entanglement is interchangeable with the spatial version, and that only means it's a matter of time before somebody tries it. I, for one, cannot wait. Next story. Remember the Star Trek movie from 1986, Star Trek The Voyage Home? This one is best remembered as the one where the crew of the Enterprise goes back in time to get whales to save the Earth from destruction in the future. It is also remembered as the story in which Spock swims into a tank to commune with said whales, which, by the way, never made any sense to me, considering that Vulcan is a desert planet. I'm always amazed he could swim at all. The story in which Chekhov continually mispronounces the word vessel as wessel. McCoy freaks out because surgeons are still using actual scalpels in hospitals for operations. 
And finally, the story in which Scotty tries to talk to a PC computer by speaking into a mouse. The other thing that the story is remembered for is Scotty's transparent aluminum. He changed history by getting somebody to manufacture the see-through aluminum so they could build a transparent tank for the whales they were transporting to the future. We still do not have transparent aluminum, but this next story suggests that there actually may be something better out there. In the world of material science, strength and toughness are not merely different attributes. They're very difficult to achieve together. Now a collaboration of researchers from Caltech and the Department of Energy has created a form of glass that has both qualities. It's stronger and tougher than steel, or indeed any known substance. The material features palladium, a metal whose possible use in glasses was recognized at least 45 years ago. Dr. Marios Dimitrio of Caltech is the lead author on the paper describing this new material in the journal Nature Materials this month. Dimitrio says, quote, What we did here is find a very, very tough marginal glass made of palladium with small fractions of metalloids like phosphorus, silicon, and germanium, which yielded one millimeter thick samples. And we just said, let's add very little of something that will make it bulk without making it brittle, unquote. They then added 3.5% silver to this marginal glass. The group was able to increase the thickness to 6 millimeters while maintaining its toughness. Demetrio said that, quote, the Achilles heel of these metallic glasses is that when you pull them in tension or try to deform them somehow, they fail catastrophically. This occurs through the formation of what's termed shear bands, small defects that coalesce into vein-like patterns that rapidly evolve as cracks. They cause the glass to break under extremely small strains. However, according to the paper, the palladium glass they have invented generates so many of these bands that they form a blockading pattern that prevents cracks from propagating without impairing the material's overall properties. The problem with this amazing glass is not that it has any technical faults. The problem is, is that palladium is very expensive. Therefore, even though there are countless applications that could utilize this glass's high strength and toughness, mostly in the automotive and aerospace industries, many of them will prove impractical in the marketplace because the stuff is just too darn expensive right now. Demetrio is more optimistic. He says there's already demand for the metallic glass and says that a product like a dental implant made from the stuff could be available within the next five years. He says that this would offer a, quote, superior alternative, unquote, traditional implants made of noble metals, which are softer and stiffer and thus more likely to wear or cause bone atrophy. He also says that the first step is convincing manufacturers that the material possesses unique and unusual properties. I suspect he will have fewer problems than Scotty did with the aluminum. Then he says, a series of tests of its performance, longevity, and biological compatibility will be needed before ultimately determining whether the pricing would be competitive. As for making large-scale and very cool structures like bridges made of glass, Demetrio says that the cost would probably prevent that. But he has hopes of developing something cheaper. Quote, if we develop an iron or copper alloy with these properties, I'll tell you this, 
we will put steel out of business forever, unquote. The final story of the night has to do with the Fillory plant, or what's known as the Common Storks Bill. The invasive plant was introduced into North America in the 18th century, and it's now endemic to the southwestern states of the United States, such as California. Much of the plant's success may be traced to its intriguing seed dispersal mechanism. The seed is launched as far as possible, and then it literally drills itself into the ground by repeatedly curling and unwinding a strap-like structure known as an awn, and this gives it the best chance to germinate. The question that has plagued physiologists for a long time is what is the mechanism that, first of all, allows the seed to be launched, and then to drill itself into the ground. Doctors Dennis Evangelista, Scott Hotton, and Jacques Dumay of Harvard published a paper in which they explained this weird drilling mechanism in the Journal of Experimental Biology. They initially set up a standard camera to fill the seeds. They wet the dry seeds and filmed them as they uncurled and then rewound when they dried. They explained in the paper that when humidity is low, the awn dries and curls and drills the seed into the soil. When the humidity rises, the awn uncurls, but backwards-facing hairs on the awn force the seed to move in one direction so that it continues drilling into the ground even when it uncurls. Plotting the tip's trajectory as it wound round, they realized that the awn behaves like a beam bending into a stressed logarithmic spiral, I think that the architects among you could probably explain that way better than I can. The authors then used engineering physics to calculate the amount of energy stored in the awn as it ripened and dried within the fruit and used it to explain how the seeds launched themselves. Evangelista said, quote, By knowing how much energy is in the dry awn when it's held straight in the seed head, I can estimate the range that it can go, unquote but they first needed to see how far the seeds could fly. They set up high-speed cameras to film the seed heads, formed by clusters of five awns, and captured the instant when an awn finally tore loose from the plant and the seeds speed as it catapulted free, launching up to a half a meter from the plant. They calculated the amount of energy that was released as the dry awn curled and broke free of the seed head and then subtracted the amount of energy required to tear the awn away, and the energy lost to wind resistance as the seed tumbled through the air before calculating the distance that the seed could be flung. Their hypothetical calculations matched the distance that the film seed had flown. So fillery seeds disperse by using energy stored in the dry awns, which then act as springs to fling the seeds up to a half meter away. Having discovered how fillery seeds are so successful at propagating, Evangelista and Dumay are now keen to find out how many other members of the geranium family disperse their seeds. Evangelista explains that all geraniums are thought to use variations of the on catapult mechanism for seed dispersal and propagation, and he's keen to find out how changes in the on's material properties affect seed dispersal in other members of the geranium family. Well, that's all for me from now. As always, take care, be on the lookout for cubits from the past or the future, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. (laughs) 
Always that pleasure, James. Thank you so much, sir. Next is Jason Sanford. Jason, I knew he was kind of working with or, you know, kind of running the Story South Million Writers Award, or involved with it anyways. And I wanted to get, because I know it's just been kicking off there, and I wanted to get a little interview with Jason just to see what that's all about. So, Jason. So we have, in my eyes, probably one of the hottest writers out there at the moment, and I've kind of blagged on about Jason Sanford before, but I, honestly, I think this guy is writing is first class. Jason, are you there, sir? I am here. Good morning, Tony. Good morning. And it's, am I right in thinking six o'clock in the morning for you, Jason? It is. It is indeed. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a lovely 11 o'clock in the morning here for me, so, but honestly, thank you for doing this. No like problem. I was saying, Jason, you know, your writing is just, it, it excites me. It does everything for us. And yet I find well, hey. now as well, you're involved with this Story South Million Writers. Now, I, I honestly don't know anything about that. So this is a competition, is it right? It is. It's a, it's a writing competition we do for every year for, for the best uh, online short stories. Uh, it's, I started I, about, what was it, 10 years ago exactly. I, uh, I founded a literary journal called Story South, and which focuses on southern uh, literature, uh, southern part of the United States. But, uh, and about eight years ago, we started doing this uh, award for online fiction. Now, which is, it's cross-genre, you know, every genre out there. You got your mysteries, you got your crime, you got your literary fiction, science fiction, fantasy, everything uh, is eligible and competes. And uh, we've, been, we've been doing it for eight years now, and we have a great response. So it's not just you then. There's more people involved with this little competition, or this big competition, should I say well, yes, I, I I do run the award every year, um, but uh, the uh, the literary journal Story South uh, still sponsors it. Um, now I stepped away; I'm no longer uh, the editor of Story South. I, they they gave me the title founding editor, uh, <laughs> editor emeritus, which basically means I do nothing now and let other people do all the work. Uh, but it's still going; the journal is still going strong. But uh, with my writing and everything, I just didn't have the time to keep editing. Um, but I still, I told them when uh, I, they took over about two years ago, I said, I still want to do, I still want to run the award. So I'm still doing that. And we just kicked off uh, yesterday, actually. So right then, how does someone get a story? If, like you say, how did, if it's even romance or anything like that, how does someone get a story into that competition? Well, yeah, we, we've the way we've set the award up, we've tried to make it very open and democratic. Because um, one of the one of the reasons I started the award was um, eight years ago, online stories were the the literary establishment, so to speak, really didn't like online literature. You know, they're like, well, that's not true publishing. That's you know, oh, your little online magazine is not a true magazine. So all the big awards, the the year's best anthologies back then tended to ignore stories that were published online. So when we set this up, I wanted to make it as democratic as I, as possible. So for the next month, we are taking nominations from uh, readers and writers. They can go online uh, and nominate one story. So, you know, and we, hey, we're up front. If you're a writer and you want to nominate your own story, as long as it meets the guidelines, hey, we're good with that. But we also take uh, nominations from readers, and very importantly, we take uh, up to three nominations from uh, the editors of different online magazines like Clark's World, uh, Lightspeed, uh, name some of um, name some of the uh, online genre magazines that uh, tend to take part. And and do you find they actually they do the likes of Inters? Oh, Inters! I'm going to say Inters, and that's a kind of 
paperback magazine. But so actually, Indizone wouldn't be involved because that's where would you put Indizone then? Because they're a little bit online with with their podcasts. Yeah, we unfortunately we don't allow any uh, print magazines to take part, and uh, Interzone would not stories published in Interzone would not be eligible. Um, Asimov's uh, the same, Analog, uh, all the well-known print magazines um, are not eligible since this is totally for online fiction. And now, when I say online fiction, I do need to put this out there because people go, "Hey, I published a story on my blog last year. Let me nominate it." No, uh, th- these are from magazines with an editor- editorial system. So, you know, you've got an editor who is picking stories, who's screening stories, who's, uh, you know, editing the works. Uh, it's magazines that have an editor. So um, now we do, uh, let's see, I'm trying to remember. We, we get a lot of nominations from these uh, online magazines. So I can't remember how many editors took part last year, but I want to say it was, uh, 40 or more, more magazines had their editors uh, nominate stories and then we get a ton of nominations from readers. Right, right. So just out, I mean, I don't know if you probably know this figure off the top of your head, how many stories did you have in last year as a whole? Oh, oh I couldn't I couldn't even begin to guess because um, after the nomination process I told you about just now, we have a second round where I, I've picked out around 20 preliminary judges and these judges go through all the nominated stories. They also look through, uh, look around the web for stories that, you know, for some reason didn't get nominated. And uh, from that, they pick um, what we call the the list of notable stories of the year. And and there we tend to have about 150 stories that are picked out for that notable list. And then we have the, another step because this is like, you know, we like to draw the award process out. <laughs> so <laughs> we have another step then. Uh, we have the final judge, uh, or this year judges. Uh, in the past, it's always been me. I go through all those notable stories. I read every one of them, and then I pick out my top ten. Uh, this year, I've asked uh, two other judges to help me on that, or I'm going to ask. Uh, they don't know who they are yet. Uh, and we So we go through and pick out the top ten stories of the year from those uh, 150 or more notable stories. And then we put it up there and let the public vote on their favorite story out of that top ten. So, uh, you know, this whole thing goes on for months. Uh, one reason we did that is it's uh, it brings a lot of attention to the stories and the authors, you know, and people they like to take part in this. In this, right? I don't know. You might have mentioned this. When's the the, the deadline for the nomination round? Then when could, when's the last you can get your story in? Uh, that's uh, March fifteenth. So, uh, like I said, it opened up uh, just the other day. Uh, we're running it for one month for the open nominations. Uh, you can go to storysouth.com/slash/millionwriters. Uh, I also have. Inf- I run a lot of information through my uh, personal website at jasonsanford.com. Um, one month, get your nominations in. Uh, if you know uh, an online literary journal or magazine that you really like, you know, contact the editor. Say, hey, get your nominations in. And uh, the good that we always have prize money for the uh, for the winning stories. Uh, this year, we already have thanks to great donations from people like you and Starship Sofa. Uh, we've now got more than $500 worth of uh, prize money. Hey, that's a nice little packet to, for someone just to pop in a story, just, you know, on the off chance they could win that as well. So that's a, an amazing thing. Well, Jason, honestly, good luck with this. I know you've probably got yourself a lot of hard work ahead of you, you know. So does it does it take much, you know, like say the last year as well, you know, when you're kind of really involved with it, does it take a lot of your time? 
It does. I mean, you know, uh, like I said, I mainly ha- I have to read every one of those notable stories, and uh, that's a lot of stories to read in about, a, you know, in less than a month. Uh, that's why I was like, this year I'm going to have to bring in some other judges to help me do that because it's just gotten to the point where, I mean, they're great stories, but, I mean, you sit down, you know, and say, hey, I've got, you know, three weeks to read 150 stories. That's a lot. That's a clip. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, and, you know, this is not really when you think, like, the slush piles. So this is, like, the, when you've got to read them, these are the stories that have made the grade. So you can't really just read the first paragraph and then bin it. You've got to sit through that and read the whole lot. Am I right in thinking? Oh, exactly. Usually. I mean, there's always a few you're like, wow, how did that one make it through? But most of them are very good stories. You know, these are stories that made it through, you know, an editor selected them for a magazine. Um and then someone nominated them, and then you know the the preliminary judges picked them for the notable list. So I mean, it went through multiple le- levels of being picked by people. So you know you don't get very many. You know, wow, I can get rid of that story after one paragraph. <laughs> well, Jason, honestly, good luck with this. You know, I'd hopefully we'll we'll get some a lot more stories sent in as well. That everyone start blogging about it as well. So take good care, and honestly, thank you for coming on Starship Sofa this early in the morning. Oh, no, I'm happy to be there. Thanks for your support, and, uh, and hey, keep doing what you're doing. Thank you very much. You look after yourself, Jason. You too. Take care. There, get your stories in. That is no excuse. Get your stories in there. Next up is the main fiction, and it comes from David D. Levine, a story called A Passion for Art. This actually came out in Interzone 228. They are just putting out some amazing stories of late, so do do check over there as well. Interzone, fantastic. We've played David on on the show a couple of times, but he, you know, I mean, he is Hugo. He's won Hugo for best short story. He's won so many awards: Writers of the Future contest. He's won the Endeavor Award, and he's been nominated or shortlisted for so many: the Nebula, Theodore Sturgeon, Jim Beam Memorial Award, earlier Hugo Award, John W. Campbell Award. He's got some some awards behind him and nominations, and just so grateful to have David on the show. This story is narrated by Randall Swartz, captain over there at the Floss Weekly, part of the Twit Network, a fantastic little podcast as well. I've been following Randall through his Twitter stream. He's been down to the Antarctic just for the last few weeks, and the photographs, he's been drinking some strange drinks down there as well, though, some... Strange looking dark liquor. <laughs> but it's been really nice. Randall, honestly, thank you for this narration. Fantastic, sir. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present. A Passion for Art by David D. Levine. Tuesday is free day at the Art Institute of Chicago, and the revolving door never stops turning. The old black rubber seals on the door thump with a steady rhythm, like a giant heart, and each beat pumps one or two people into the dark and the cool of the marble-floored lobby. Mothers pushing strollers, tourists in baseball caps, noisy gaggles of school kids. They stop for a moment, their eyes adjusting to the dark, then move to the information desk in the middle of the lobby to pick up a map or ask questions. They're here out of some sense of duty. They feel they ought to see this stuff or show it to their kids. A few people charge right through the lobby. They've been here before, and they've come back to commune with the masterpieces in the museum's collection. The look in their eyes is like lovers right before a rendezvous. And then there's me. I usually breeze through the lobby, too, but although I'm an art lover myself, I rarely have a chance to visit my favorite pieces. 
Instead, I am here to meet with the head of security, or survey a gallery for vulnerabilities, or inspect the alarm system. On this particular Tuesday, though, I was sitting on a granite bench, tearing the boarding pass from last night's red-eye flight into smaller and smaller pieces as I waited for the museum director to get out of a meeting. It wasn't like Harry to make me wait in the lobby. I hoped he hadn't called any of my recent employers. One of the uniformed guards spoke up. "'Excuse me, miss, but there's no smoking in here.' My eyes turned automatically to the source of the disturbance, a tall redhead with porcelain skin and a sprinkling of freckles across her nose. Her dress was a vivid burgundy, and she had an extravagant broad-brimmed black hat with a white scarf for a hatband. Her eyes were brown, not green, but gorgeous anyway. Intense. She looked like one of those lovers right after her rendezvous. I was jealous of whatever painting she'd come to see. She held out her hands, fingers spread wide, and said, "'I'm not smoking.' "'Sorry, miss, I thought I saw—' "'Well, you didn't. Excuse me.' She resumed walking towards the door. Now I saw what the guard had seen, a wisp of smoke right behind the redhead, but there was no cigarette in her hands or in her mouth, and no smell of tobacco. Was it smoke at all? It looked funny, more like a tangle of fine wire than a puff of smoke, and it moved funny, too. Not drifting. More like it was keeping pace with her. Then a crazy thing happened. She held the revolving door for a moment so the smoke could get in along with her. At least, that's what it looked like. The giant heartbeat resumed its pace, and everything was as it had been. I was still staring at the door when I realized someone was calling my name. "'Mr. Carnes? Mr. Justin Carnes?' It was one of the gray-haired ladies at the information desk. She had her hand over the mouthpiece of a telephone. I picked up my briefcase and walked to the desk. "'I'm Justin Carnes.' "'Mr. Bennett says he can see you now.' The Art Institute's public spaces are all marble and granite, but after you pass through the door marked Employees Only and climb the steps to the administrative offices, it's like any corporation with fluorescent light and little beige cubicles. At least the director has an office with a door. "'Hey, Harry,' I said as I shook his hand. "'Long time no see.' He was a little balder, a little grayer, but still whip-thin and, if anything, even more sharply dressed. His tie showed a guy in a 1940s suit sitting in an all-night café. It was a detail from Nighthawks. The original was downstairs and worth millions. I was suddenly aware that I was wearing the same suit as the last time I'd been here, six years ago, and it had been a little tired even then. I resolved to get a new suit as soon as I was back on my feet again, and hoped this job would be the one to do it. "'Thank you for coming in on such short notice. How was your flight?' "'Not bad. Why do you keep me waiting in the lobby?' Harry closed the door. "'This is a tricky situation.' The Chicago art scene is a pretty small town, and if anyone finds out about this vandalism before we have it under control, I'll have a hell of a time retaining my donors. I was meeting with one of them when you arrived. You remember Carol Peary? Yes, and I'm sure she remembers me and why I was here the last time. I'd been called in after a series of burglaries in Europe to assess the Art Institute's security. She and I had had some rather heated discussions about how much the changes I'd recommend would cost. "'Exactly. I can trust my staff to keep your presence quiet, but if she saw you, she'd know right away we had some kind of security issue. It's the same reason I can't call in any of the local specialists. I was wondering why you'd bring me in from Seattle for a little vandalism problem.' "'It's not so little.' The phone warbled, and he held up a finger to me as he answered it. "'Bennett!' 
The voice on the other end went on for a while, and as he listened, Harry scrunched up his face and pinched the bridge of his nose between his thumb and forefinger. Damn! Close the gallery immediately. I'll be right there. He put down the phone. It's happened again. Come with me. Harry's face was tight and his steps were hard and fast as we walked past display cases of furniture and guns. Empty suits of armor stood straight, like the ghosts of dead security guards. As we passed one helmet, displayed at head level in a glass case, I saw my own face reflected for a moment in the darkness of its raised visor. We arrived at the drawings and prints gallery as the guards were shooing out the last of the patrons. Leo Pirelli, Harry's head of security, took us down the gallery to an artwork that hung in a very simple frame with no glass. It was a work on paper with a few pencil lines around the edges. The middle of the paper was blank. This is the damaged piece? I asked. Yes, Leo replied. It looks okay. It used to be a pencil sketch of a ballerina by Edward Moy, Harry said. A minor 20th century artist, but one of my favorite pieces in this gallery. The expression in her eyes was priceless. Damn it! He turned around, clearly pained by the sight of the damaged drawing. Now it's gone, like the others, he said. Erased. I thought the others were oil paintings. Two oils and a watercolor, but just like this, the central figure was removed, leaving the background and canvas intact. Not a molecule of paint left behind and no trace of any caustic chemicals. I peered at the bottom of the frame. There were no eraser crumbs, no paper dust or graphite. The paper in the middle looked the same as the rest of it, except for a few faint creases, maybe where the pencil lines had been. How did he do it? No idea. We thought at first the pieces were stolen and replaced with blanks as some sort of rude gesture. But the canvases and the remaining paint tested out as authentic. Bad enough if they'd been taken, but this destruction! He grabbed me by the shoulders, his lean fingers digging into my flesh. You've got to stop it! I'm your man. No fuck-ups this time, I told myself. This is your last chance. Are you going to dust for fingerprints? Leo asked me. Nope. You want to catch the bad guy, call a cop. My job is to stop him in the first place. I hoped I could do it. Back in Harry's office, we went over the situation. This was the fourth damaged work in three months. In every case, the damage had occurred on a Tuesday during open house. The vandal worked fast. After the second incident, they put in floor guards on the 15-minute sweeps, and it hadn't helped. The motion detectors were no use during the day, and though they had video, they didn't have 100% coverage, and none of the incidents had been captured on camera. You've got to have proximity sensors. Get an infrared system like the one they have at MoMA. You can't even see it, but you get an audible alarm if anyone gets within three feet of the art. You said the same thing last time, and I'm telling you now what I told you then. I don't want to keep the public away from the art. That's not what this museum is about. You have a responsibility to protect these works for future generations. You said so yourself. He puffed out his cheeks. Look, you know American Gothic? Guy with a pitchfork and his wife? Yeah, I've seen it a thousand times. She's his daughter, and you've seen reproductions. I've seen the original, too. It's right downstairs. It looks just like its pictures. Yes, if you're three feet away from it. But if you get close, you can see the brushstrokes, see the places the artist changed his mind and painted something out. You can see that it was a handmade thing, not a photograph and not a print. To see an original painting is to meet the artist. But if you're too far away, it's more like seeing the artist on television. And if the vandal got close before you did, you'd see a nice view of a blank canvas. There was poison in his stare, but I knew he was right. Okay, get me a quote. We can probably can't afford it anyway. I know exactly who to call. And here's something you can do right away. Make the patrons check all hand-carried items. 
I don't know how the vandal is doing it, but whatever he is using has to take up some space. We're already stopping everything bigger than a handbag, and they're bitching like crazy about that. If I set the filter any tighter, the complaints will go through the roof. Your choice. I'll ask Leo if we have the staff for it. We discussed a few more options and my fee. He wanted me to stick around for installation and shakedown of whatever system we agreed on, and he was willing to pay for a month of my time plus a per diem. The thought of a month away from home made me itchy, but it's not as though anyone was there to miss me. And if I could make a good impression here, it might wash the taste of my previous failures out of a few mouths on the West Coast. That was Tuesday. By Friday, I had a badge, a cubicle of my own at the Art Institute, and a room at the Stockton Inn. It was a little shabby, but every dollar I didn't spend for my per diem was a dollar I could put in the bank. I also had Harry's grudging consent to install proximity alarms on some of the most valuable pieces, provided I could keep the cost down. It's like taking a shower with a raincoat on, he said, but if it keeps the vandal away, it's worth it. I threw myself into the project. I called in every favor I had in the Midwest. I skipped meals. I regularly worked until two or three in the morning, got four or five hours sleep, then did it again the next day. But after two nightmare weeks, the system was installed and running. Harry caught a lot of flack from donors and the general public, but you can't please everyone. I started getting more sleep, working on the fine-tuning the system, and getting the bugs out and was feeling pretty good about the way the project had turned out. A week after that, Pocahontas vanished. Despite the proximity monitors, despite the bag checks, despite the increased staffing on Tuesdays, despite everything I had been able to think of to prevent it, a life-sized 400-pound marble sculpture of a half-clad young woman had somehow been removed from its base. There was nothing left except a pair of smooth depressions where its feet and legs had been. The one bright spot is that the sculpture gallery was under video surveillance. Harry, Leo, and I were crammed around a tiny black-and-white TV screen in the basement utility closet. When did it happen? I asked Leo. Between 2.15 and 2.25, he said. Ten minutes? I shouted, not caring that it made him wince. That's impossible! Latosha told me that she swept that gallery at 2.15, and she's one of my best people. I know she called in the incident at 2.25. How could anyone chisel through half a foot of marble in ten minutes? I hope we're about to find out, said Harry. The numbers in the corner of the screen flickered from 1405 to 1410, and Leo pushed play. We watched nothing happening for five excruciating minutes. It had been a very light day, and there was only an occasional patron. Pocahontas stood, cool and serene, in the upper left corner of the screen. At 1417, we saw Latosha pass through, jerky and gray as an old movie. Leo said, see? But I just nod at the lip of my foam coffee cup. Then at 1421, a woman came in and stopped in front of Pocahontas. She wore a light-colored, broad-brimmed hat with a dark scarf for a hatband, a long trench coat, and sunglasses. She seemed familiar, though I couldn't yet place her. The woman stood in front of the statue for a long time, three minutes by the clock. Her posture was not the usual contemplative stance you see in museums. It was more like the way you stand when you're talking with a friend. Her hands moved like she was talking, too, though we couldn't see her mouth. Then Pocahontas turned her head. None of us said a word, although I heard a crinkling and a splashing. Later I found I'd crushed my coffee cup and burned my hand with the hot coffee, but at the time nobody noticed. The woman reached up her hands, gently beckoning, a young mother urging a child to take her first step. The statue reached out her hands to meet them and stepped off her pedestal, lithe as a fawn. 
Then both of them looked to the left. That must be when the proximity alarm went off, I said. There was no sound on the tape. The clock read 1424. The woman and the statue hurried off at the top of the screen, hand in hand like a couple of sorority girls running in from some prank they pulled. Son of a bitch, Leo said. The ladies' room was right around that corner. Matosha came in from the left less than 30 seconds later. She immediately put her radio to her mouth and turned in a circle looking in every corner of the gallery. Two other guards came in a minute later and the three of them split up to search the gallery and the adjacent ones. Another couple of minutes and Leo showed up, then Harry and me. While our grainy black and white images stared stupidly at the empty pedestal, a tall woman with a dark dress and light-colored hair came out of the bathroom. She was holding the hand of a shorter woman with a trench coat, broad-brimmed hat, and sunglasses. No shoes. And a very pale skin. Right behind our backs, Leo breathed. The bitch walked out of the museum right behind our backs. I didn't know if he was referring to the woman or the statue. I've seen her before, I said. I saw her in the lobby on my first day here. The day the ballerina vanished, said Harry. I thought about why she'd come to my attention. The wisp of smoke that didn't look or move quite like smoke, more like a scribble in the air, or a set of pencil lines pulled from their paper. I think I saw that ballerina walk out the front door, I said. We went back to Harry's office and opened a bottle of wine. I would have preferred something stronger. It's time to call the cops, I said. No, said Harry. The video is not clear enough for a positive ID. For another thing, they'll never believe it. Well, I don't believe it, said Leo. I figure the crew from Candid Camera is laughing at us right now. I would be so happy if that were the case, said Harry, because then we'd get the missing pieces back eventually. But my gut tells me that this tape is for real. And a big part of that is what you saw in the lobby. He gestured at me with his plastic cup. I'm not going to swear to you I saw a pencil sketch walk through a revolving door, but I think that might be what I saw. If it turns out you're with Candid Camera, I'll kill you, said Leo. Candid Camera's been off the air for years, I said. So what do we do now? Harry asked. I ticked off points on my fingers. One, double the guard on Tuesdays. Two, focus security on artworks with full human figures, especially women. Not just women, Harry said. The third piece to go was a Dutch burger. Okay, I said, all human figures. And three, I personally will watch for the redhead. I'm the only one who's ever had a decent look at her. What will you do if you spot her, said Leo? If we can't show this tape to the cops, we have no good reason to detain or reject her. I want to talk to her. I'm hoping we can get the artworks back. We stared at each other for a while, then Leo said, I don't know about you, but I'm going home for the day. We all agreed that was a good idea. On my way out of the building, I detoured back to the sculpture gallery. I stared at the empty spot where Pocahontas had stood, now occupied by a card saying it had been removed for cleaning, then at the nearby bust of Zenobia by the same artist. I studied that blank-eyed white face for a long time. What could she say if she could speak? As I turned to leave, I noticed a star-shaped crack in the flooring, and another about three feet away, and another. The footprints of a 400-pound person with a very hard feet. I shuddered and left the museum. We hired more staff and shifted the proximity sensors around. The following Tuesday, I camped out in the lobby all day. The redhead did not show. No more artworks were damaged, and that was the end of my month. Harry managed to scare up the funds for another few weeks of my time. That's all I can spare, he said. 
I wish I could promise to keep you on until we get to the bottom of this, but I can't. I spent the next day debugging and fine-tuning the proximity system. I had to get this job right. But the system vendor had done a good job, and there wasn't a lot to do. I wound up hanging around the galleries a lot, wondering. One night I came back into the museum after dinner and sat with the paintings until after midnight, slowly draining my daddy's silver hip flask. What does she see in you? I asked them. What do you see in her? Does she coerce you to come with her? Or is it what you've always wanted? The cold, rational farmer in American Gothic stared out of the painting back at me, straight as his house. He would never leave his frame. His daughter, I thought, might go with the redhead if she would ever take her eyes off her father, which I doubted. Marcel Duchamp's nude, seated in a bathtub, had some things in common with Pocahontas, I thought. But she had a slightly annoying expression on her face, as though she were displeased that the artist had interrupted her at her bath. She would not be likely to take up the redhead's offer to go for a stroll. It was the four characters in the diner of Nighthawks that worried me the most. They seemed so isolated, so desperate, so lonely that they would leave in a heartbeat if she asked. No doubt they had thought of themselves as hard-bitten and independent, but I could see they really craved companionship. Why else would they have come to this bright place on a dark street in the middle of a night? Maybe they were security consultants who didn't have a soul in the world to call a friend. I stared and paced and fidgeted away the days, and then it was Tuesday again. 9.30 a.m. I'd been lounging casually on the bench since half an hour before the opening, watching the revolving door, hoping and fearing I would see the redhead. Whenever I thought about talking with her, I got a feeling like a high-voltage wire. It raised the hairs on the back of my hand and worried me that if I touched it, I wouldn't be able to let go. How did she do what she did? How could I stop her? How could I get the vanished artworks back? Then the door thumped, and she was there. I knew her right away. She had the intense brown eyes I remembered from that first day, and her walk had a grace that even a jerky black-and-white security video couldn't obscure. Today the hat was hunter green, the dress white. Excuse me, miss, could I please have a word with you? Those were the words I'd rehearsed over and over in my mind, but somehow I couldn't get them out. Instead, I stood up from my bench and watched as she strode, heels tick-tocking on the marble, into the museum. I followed her. I heard a hum of high voltage, or maybe it was just the lights. She wandered through some of the ground-floor galleries, up the grand staircase, through the Hall of Architecture, and through the glass doors into the first gallery of European paintings. Though the museum was nearly deserted, I was sure she hadn't noticed me following her. She was too intent on the art. I watched through the glass as she stopped in front of a painting that dominated the space, a Sunday on La Grande Jatte, 1884. This massive painting, seven by nine feet, was composed of millions of tiny dots of color. It was world-famous and priceless. And she was looking at it in the same way she'd looked at Pocahontas, like talking to a friend. She was talking. I could see the edge of her jaw moving, though I couldn't hear what she was saying. The painting began to shimmer like a hot day, like running water. The large female figure on the right side seemed to stir. No! I shouted, surprising myself, breaking the spell that had held me still. But it didn't affect her. She hadn't heard me through the thick glass. I pushed open the door, shouted, Stop! And she turned. Her eyes burned with an impossible brown radiance, and I watched her face slip from rapture to pain to horror to hatred all in one sick moment. Ah! she screamed, a beautiful voice drawn over a sharp edge, then, No! 
anger trailing off to sobs as she turned away from me back to the painting. The woman in the painting was half torn from the background. A smear of tiny colored points splattered across the surface. Bare canvas was visible here, a mix of colors the artist had never intended there. Her face, once so composed and serene, was frozen in a distorted rictus of agony. "'You've killed her!' the redhead screamed at me, her voice as ragged and as distorted as the painted figure, and she ran past me and down the stairs. I couldn't move for a moment. My eyes felt stitched to the ruined masterpiece, but then I ripped myself away and stumbled after her. Her sobbing echoed among the severed finials and gargoyles in the Hall of Architecture as she ran down the stairs. She got to the bottom of the stairs before I hit the first landing. "'Stop her!' I managed to shout." but none of the guards was quick enough, and she was able to reach the revolving door. Out into the sunshine. I saw her getting into a taxi on Michigan Avenue. There was another one with its light on right behind it, and I shoved a tourist out of the way and fell into the back. "'Follow that cab!' I shouted. "'You're shitting me,' said the driver. "'I'll give you a thousand bucks. Just follow that cab.' "'A thousand? Anything. J just go!' I pounded on the thick plastic divider with both fists. "'Go, go, go!' He went as only a Chicago cabbie can. As the cab hurtled through a kaleidoscope of streets, it all came down on me. I'd fucked up again. It was worse than Fry, at least there were the stolen prints that eventually been recovered. But Sunday on La Grande Jatte was ruined, maybe beyond repair. And they would never get that huge painting off the wall before someone saw it. And I'd let it happen. This was the end of my career. There it is, man, she's getting out. The cabbie pointed to where the other cab had pulled over in front of one of those stolid little brick apartment buildings that Chicago was so fond of. He swerved across two lanes of traffic and jerked to a stop half a block behind it, then grinned at me through a scarred plastic. That'll be one thousand dollars. I shoved everything I had in my wallet through the slot. Here's what I've got. It's a couple hundred. You said a thousand. Here's my watch, too. I left the cab, ran down a block, and up to the door. An old lady with one of those wire shopping baskets on wheels stared back at me through the glass. "'I'm looking for a redhead,' I shouted. "'Tall, brown eyes!' The woman recoiled, hurried away down the hall with a glance over her shoulder. I saw my crazed reflection in the glass and realized I wouldn't let me in either. I took three deep breaths and looked over the names on the mailboxes. G. Chanowski, K. Brantwitz, O. Juarez. But there was one that was written with a calligraphy pen, not punched out with a label maker. Titania. I punched the buzzer. Hello? It was her voice. Strained through a battered brass grate, tired and ragged and beaten, but definitely her voice. Miss Titania, my name's Justin. I saw what happened at the museum this morning, and I want to talk with you. Leave me alone. I promise I won't hurt you. I promise I won't tell anyone. I just only want to talk. Go away! Please, let me in. I just want to know, I just want to know what you said to her, to make her come out of the painting. A long pause. Then a harsh buzzer sounded. I pushed the door open before she could change her mind. When I found her door, she was peering out over the chain. As soon as she saw me, her face bunched in anger. You! she shouted, and slammed the door. Yes, it's, it's me, I said to the door, loud enough to be heard through it, but as calm as I could muster. I'm sorry I interrupted. I should have said something sooner than I did. You said you wanted to know what I said. I do. How do you do it? How do you see that nobody else can see? She started to sob. Jesus. The door opened enough to show her face again. I've never been able to talk with anyone about it, but you've seen it. You know. 
Yes, can I come in? She hesitated. You said you won't tell anyone. Promise. The door closed. Then there was a little rattle, and it opened again. The apartment was small, its walls dense with paintings, posters, and prints. Stacks of canvases lined up against the walls, and easels with works in progress stood in several places. There was an odor I couldn't identify, not unpleasant oil paint. Sitting on the sofa, denting it deeply, was Pocahontas. She was wearing a loose smock over her marble skin. The angle of her head indicated she was watching me intently, but it was hard to tell with her pupilless eyes. A dark, wrinkled man stood near the window. Light came through cracks in his skin, his clothes, showing that he was hollow, a thin skin of oil paint and nothing more. He crinkled slightly as he moved. He said something I couldn't understand. Dutch? The redhead Titania responded hesitantly in the same language, and he seemed to relax a bit. And there, barely visible where she stood before a blank canvas, was Edward Moy's ballerina. Now that I knew what I was seeing, she looked less like smoke than a loose ball of fine gray wire. She moved smooth as a swan. There were others. How? I managed. Why? You have to have a passion, Titania responded. Really care about them, as people, more than anything else in the whole world. I've tried and tried to explain it. You know you shouldn't do this. These... People were meant to be shared. That's why they were in a museum. I can't help it. When I really get to know them, when they get to know me, they just come. She started to sob. I told Marie, the woman from Sunday, about the sailboats on Lake Michigan. She, she wanted to see them. Maybe you can put them back. Back, she shouted, sadness flaring to anger again. Would you go back to the museum if you knew you could never leave? The dark man trembled from the force of her emotion tiny flakes of paint drifting down to the hardwood floor. This world wasn't meant for them. How could they survive out here? They can't. Her eyes were an onslaught. Monsieur Vanderplog is falling apart and Suzette is unraveling. Pocahontas is already getting slow and unresponsive. They'll never last more than a few months. They could have lasted hundreds of years in the museum. I'd rather see butterflies flying for a summer than pinned under glass forever. She took a step towards me and I stepped back, then another. I bumped up against an easel, the blank canvas I'd seen Suzette standing in front of earlier. Would you rather be alive for a month, or dead for a hundred years? She pushed closer to me, her face filling my vision. Please, bring them back, before it's too late. The whole world was her eyes, her mouth. You're the same as my professors, the same as everyone else in the art establishment. Dead artists, dead art, that's all you care about. Her eyes glowed brown, and I felt myself drawn into them. Real art wants to live. It was true. I thought of my nighthawks, how desperately they must crave companionship, how much they feared the loneliness of the darkness beyond their bright café. The loneliness of a man who has failed, whose career has ended, who hasn't a soul to call a friend in all the world. I let myself fall into the infinite depths of those luminous brown eyes and into the blank canvas behind me. The first days after that were the worst, watching helplessly as Titania hurriedly packed her possessions and cleared out the apartment, leaving me to be found by the police. They kept peering at me out of the corners of their eyes, as though they thought they could feel my gaze upon them. I spent a long time in an evidence locker. Eventually I was sold at auction, and I wound up in a small private collection in Oak Park, the slightly famous souvenir of a case that was never solved. Here I am, admired, even appreciated. 
It's not a bad existence, though apparently the expression frozen on my painted face is rather disturbing. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is David's. Big thank you to David and a big thank you to Randall. What a guy. So, last week I was meant to play John's... John who... John Dodds who had the story in last week. I was meant to put the interview at the end of the story. Forgot all about it. John, sorry. What can I say? But this is the interview I did with John. And I actually got an email off John as well. Just saying that he's now number three in podium books. You know, like the kind of... The top... He's in that kind of the top ten. He's on his number three slot there with his story, Board Machines. You know, it hit number three there. So that's a, that's a marvellous feat, that, John. Honestly, great stuff. So thank you so much for letting us know. So we have John Dobbs on the phone there now, who has just wrote that fantastic story. John, are you there, sir? Yes, I am, Tony. Hi, I'm, I'm, I'm so excited to be on the sofa. <laughs> thank, honestly, thank you so much. Now, we've just been chatting just before we kind of got in there, but you're a, re- a residence now of Bulgaria. I, I am, yes. My wife and, he, my wife and I moved here um, about, about three years ago. We originally got the place as a holiday home, but we'd, you know, we'd had a dream of living here. We just, we just love it here, and the people are fabulous, and we, we have some... Um, um, people from the UK as, as neighbours and friends as well. So there's a nice a nice mix. But um, I have to say, you know, if, if you read the try and read the average um, sh- shop sign or, or, a, or directions on a map or a road sign, it's it's a bit like trying to read Klingon, you know, <laughs> for me. But <laughs> you know what, John, what, what I love as well, you know, you sent us an email and it, we've actually been in touch for you know, a number, of years, and you've been listening to the sofa as well, you say, for a number of years. But you, you sent us a, yeah. um, an email and it's, you know, the, it was just like the bottom line, which I thought was great, you know, oh, and Michael Muapcock says, John Dobbs is one of the most promising new writers I have read for some time. I highly recommend his work. Oh, John, that is some praise to get it off, you know, the man himself, Muapcock. Well, I'll tell you something, Tony. That that I was so excited about that, and for a whole bunch of reasons. First, because it's Michael Moorcock, and uh, you know, I, I you know, I, I use uh, Michael uh, Moorcock's forum. I think it's Moorcock's Miscellany. It's called, and um, it, the, the admin there says, "Look, this is quite a big deal because uh, Michael doesn't doesn't dole out uh, plugs um, as a rule," um, and uh, I, I can remember. Um, one of the, my first encounters with uh, fantasy or science fantasy, I think we called it in the 70s um, or 60s, um, I found um, a copy of The Singing Citadel, which is, I think, the second or third Elric novel in a, you know, in a bargain bin in, in Woolies <laughs> in, on, on Stornoway on the Isle of Lewis. And I picked it up and I was completely gobsmacked by it. And I thought... This is amazing. I've got to find out um, more about this guy's work. And I basically, be, I, I read everything I could lay my hands on. And, and I've, I've read in all, all through the years, really, you know, everything like, like the English assassin books and his um, Colonel Piat um, books, you know, the kind of um, Gloriana, the Unfulfilled Queen. And I just think he's a, he's a wonderful writer. And to get, you know, a praise from him was just a really big deal for me. And um, it, it came through um, the... The, the website that my, the Doctor Northwind originally appeared in, it's called Fantra- Fantastic Metropolis, and Michael Murcott was one of the contributors and background editors, if you like. He, he was one of the kind of uh, um, team there. 
and um, the, the, my story was then selected to go into their first anthology, which came out from Prime Books. So that that was really exciting. And I guess I, you know, dropped them a line, and they said, oh, "Well, Michael's very happy to give you a wee plug there." So that was that was how that came about, really. Oh, it's it's uh, you know, there's a couple of things that you mentioned there. You know, you're, you're on about like bargain bins. It's like it does seem like Moorcock's work is in them. Bar- you know, them early kind of novels with them pe- kind of penny dime paperbacky things. The raw we went yeah. to Glastonbury Festival a few years ago, and there was a tent just you know selling just like. Second-hand books, but they, they weren't. You know, there were second, there were second-hand books on the shelves. But even this tent had a bargain bucket, and there was more cock in there. You know, he couldn't even make it under the second-hand shelf of the. You know, he was in the bargain bucket there as well. I just thought, oh, but I, I know absolutely, absolutely fantastic. And uh, one place um, I, a few years back, um, there's a there's a little town in Scotland called Wicktown, which is known as the Book Town, which is basically Walsall bookshop, second-hand bookshops, little hole-in-the-wall, hole-in-the-corner places, and um, several of them just had yards of Michael Moorcock stuff. But I think Michael also said at one stage, um, you know, a book hasn't become a real book until it's appeared in a second-hand shop, or, you know, until... It was something to, worse to that effect, you know, which I thought was quite quite entertaining, really. You know, like he's saying, it's, it's become a real thing now because it's ended up as a second-hand or a remainder. <laughs> second-hand rather than remainder, you know, because it's been, you yes. know, it's been read and yes. passed around and somebody's bought it and somebody else will buy it. And, uh, you know, it's that, I think that's just a lovely idea. Tell us about, because I'd like to know more about, you know, his Metropolis. Was he just was he just in the back room just as one of the editors, or was it his baby? Because it's now defunct, hasn't it, this Metropolis site? I think, I think it is. I think Fantastic Metropolis is defunct now. Um, it's a, it's um, a guy called Luis Rodriguez, Rodriguez um, who was the editor there, um, and... Uh, he, Michael, I think, was was one of the, I don't know, board of directors or something like that. You know, he kind of had a background team. Um, and I don't know that he played a, an overly active role in the actual editing process, but he did write articles for it from time to time, and they did pieces about Michael, and um, they, they were... I, I think Fantastic Metropolis really would be... Um, not, not so much his baby the way New 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 Worlds was, but more he, he was a, a I suppose an advising editor or, or, or something along those lines. Um, I'm and, actually uh, I'm sure it's still I'm sure it's still there though, isn't it? You can still go and have a look oh, at it. It's still there. Yes, yes. Well, I, I will I will absolutely. put a link on to that, to that site, you know, because it's. It's a nice place for me to go to have a little bruise around and see if I, oh, I'll, I'll see if I can tap that writer for that story. Or you know, they're always nice these places, yep. and it's lovely that it is still there and it's not taken down and, and gone. And I'm right in thinking then, your this story we've just played, Doctor North's wound, that's from that site. Yes, it's it's still on the site. Um, I have to say, I've I've edited it somewhat since, uh, and I found I was I was tinkering a bit with it when I when I was recording it for you as well. Um, I found some things out there that I didn't I didn't quite like, or that you know there was the odd sentence that sort of leapt out at me, and I thought that doesn't make any bloody sense, you know. And then uh, so what I did. Um, as well was I've I've republished it myself um, as in a collection of short stories called um, Doctor North's Wind and other stories, and people can get that through uh, Lulu dot com, and I think I think you get it through Barnes and Nobles on on Barnes and Noble online and places like that as well. But basically, 
all of the stories in there are were originally published in some one magazine or another. I, I had a, a few stories published in the Horror Express, and um, uh, I, and I've had a, a story on the kind of pseudopod horror magazine and crime wave. So there's a mix of crime and horror, and there's one story which appeared in a, a, an anthology that the Scotsman newspaper and, and um, did uh, a few years back, which I suppose is what people call magical realism, which started life as a horror story, but I completely rewrote it and I softened it, softened it down a bit and it was selected along with about 15 other stories for a competition, if you like. Um, uh, so that appears in an anthology called Shorts, which is produced by Polygon. But what I did was I, I republished all of those stories in, in one anthology, and you can actually get some of the individual stories free as PDF, PDFs off my blog. Um, but uh, you know, it would be great if people put their, put their hands in the pocket and, and you know spent a fiver to get to get my my paperback collection. But uh, um, that, but that's to go back to your question. Yes, that's where the story originally appeared, and it's in its original form is there, and indeed it's also in the anthology um, Breaking Windows, which. I think you can more or less still get hold of if you search around Amazon and so on, but it may be out of print now because I think it was a limited edition thing. It's called Breaking Windows, a fantastic Metropolis sampler. John, I'm I'm on your Lulu that. site now, and I'm buying I'm buying it there now just for. There you go. That's, I'm just about to save and continue. I nearly had it shipping somewhere in Australia because I I use um, I use Lulu for, for my books as well. And it you know and it was just obviously Dee's sent it out somewhere. You know the copy of Volume Two, and it's it was going to go. Someone was going in Australia. Was some artist in Australia was going to get your copy, but I'm just there setting sending the click out there now. I've just better make sure it's all. Well, Oh, look, it's well, well, that's great. well, yeah. Well, I want to snag myself a copy of uh, uh, the, the the sofa, one of the sofa collections as well. But um, I have to wait till I'm back in the UK because um, th- there's some bizarre thing that that mail tends to go missing here. You know, like packages and things go weirdly missing. And a few of my people, my friends in the UK, said the same thing. Um, I, I think that's hopefully starting to die down now. But uh, there was a, a point where stuff just wasn't getting through, and I thought, well, I'm not going to order anything else that's a package because it would just it'll never arrive. Yeah, you've but, got uh, you've got to kind done. of you've got to know Lulu. Do you know what I mean? Because you, you also get stung with certain like prices for postage as well. But once you get over that kind oh, of hiccup, you, you know it's it's a little bit better. Yeah, I know the the, price, the prices are, the, the, the 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 prices for shipping are, are a bit on the steep side. Side. I mean, basically, um, you know, put it. I put the price as a fiver for Doctor North Wind, which basically gives me I don't know fifty pence or a pound or something like to that effect. So I'm not I'm not going to make my fortune out of it. But I, I made it as low a price as I could and still get, come away with something. But I think by the time you paid for shipping, you, you I don't know what you'll pay for it. You'll end up paying seven or eight quid. I don't know, but. Um, Two ninety nine postage. Yeah, you see, that's that's almost the price of the book. You know, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's a bit crazy. But could I also say, Tony, that if people have got can, you know ebook readers, they can get they can get the anthology cheaper and at no shipping cost through smashwords.com. It's also available as an ebook. So if they prefer that and they don't want to do postage, you know, that's that's another another route. So, John, are, are you now then? Full time writing. That's it. You, this is your. No, I'm not saying like hobby, but is this your your passion? Or that's, you're trying to kind of make your living from well, writing. 
Yeah, well, well, basically, um, my my hope is someday to make my living from it. I mean, um, I I am beavering away. I mean, um, I, I my first novel, Bone Machines, was basically a crime stroke horror book, which was published fairly badly by a, a small press in in Scotland um, in the end of 2007, basically, and they rushed it through. They didn't give it enough time for editing and type correction and stuff like that. And luckily. It's out of print now, so um, you know, I, 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 you know, a few people bought it, but we're talking handfuls. So what I, I'm, I'm republishing that myself through Lulu, but at the same time, I'm trying to find an agent for my next one, Callie's Kiss, which I wrote here in Bulgaria. So in terms of writing time, in uh, the, you know, the Bone Machines I wrote over a four-year period, which came to about 93,000 words. Kelly's Kiss is 125,000 words, and I wrote that in probably over the period of one year. So I'm, I've definitely got more time writing. And I've got a bunch of projects on the go. Um, an American, um, this is weird, my, my friends think this is hilarious, but an American romance publisher has invited me to write a, a, an anthology of short stories called Warriors and Wenches. So uh, they've picked up two of my stories for that so far, and they're really keen on them. And um, so I'm going to write a bunch more. So there's things like, um, I, 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 wanted to, I wanted to call it corsets and kilts, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the, the, um, I, I had a lot of, lot of fun doing that. So, um, you know, there's, there's a bit of supernatural stuff in there. There's a bit of historical romance. And um, um, so, you know, the stories will cover everything from... Um, uh, you know, Arthurian stuff to Scottish history to um, you know Japanese mythology. Um, you know, so there's a bunch of things in there. That's what I was going to ask you, John. Where would you? I'm, I'm not saying pigeonhole you, but where would you put yourself? You know, are you are you a fantasy? Are you crime? Is it horror? What would you call your work? In, in, well, if if my friends were to pigeonhole me, they would probably say. John is one very strange guy, <laughs> but I, I think I think probably um, when I started writing, my ultimate ambition was to be a science fiction writer. Um, I think probably where I sit is almost no matter what I write, um, I end up having something a bit peculiar in it. So my crime novel has a bit of horror in it. My my science fiction stuff tends to be, um, you know, can have a bit of, uh, uh, you know, other other stuff going on in it, horror or fantasy. I have written some out and out fantasy, but um, I think I think some I I quite like um, uh, cross cross genre. Um, I have tried writing pure science fiction stories unsuccessfully, I must say. Um, the, the stuff of mine that's, that's been picked up has tended to be um, stories about people, really, in, in, in extraordinary circumstances. So I think probably that's always what I write about, you know, people in, in, in strange situations, <laughs> you know, whatever those situations may, may be, whether it's an alien situation or a a kind of supernatural situation, or um, you know, I, I like um, I like to push people to the edge of their their boundaries, you know, and then find out what happens to them after that. So sometimes that boundary is 
that's being pushed as an external force, like something in a vaguely science fictional world. Sometimes it's about just pure human behaviour, you know, where um, you know they've done something that, that makes them go down a particular path, um, and 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 they, they they meet a brick wall on the way, you know. So um, it, I guess well, that's not really answering your question, of it? Probably speculative horror fantasy cross with a bit of crime thrown in. <laughs> that was such an easy question for me to ask and it was such a difficult one, you know what I mean? It's just like, ah, right, now, Tony, oh, God, right, where do I put myself? What, yeah. where, just, you know, we're kind of round up now, John, where, have you got any other things that you kind of planned in the future that we're going to look out for? Uh, well, I have, yes, um, for sure. Well, I, I mentioned this uh, anthology, Warriors and Wenches, um, uh, uh, I'm, I'm kind of trying to get an agent for Callie's Kiss, which is, um, well, one, one thing people can get right now is um, the, pod, the free podcast of my novel, Bone Machines. Um, and if they like that, the, it will be out as a free ebook and um, a paperback. With, you know, if they want to buy a, a paperback, they'll be able to get that through Lulu. But really... Um, my hope is that um, people, you know, I'll get a, a publisher for Carrie's Kiss, uh, but at the same time, um, I'm writing um, what I describe as a steampunk um, novel, um, and uh, the you know the anthology is under fairly well underway, um, and I've got um, a short crime novel, which is set in Bulgaria. Um, it's partly it's about the Bulgarian mafia um, um, and uh, an American private detective. So it's a kind of Raymond Chandlery meets Bulgarian bad guys type thing. Um, and and there's one other which uh, it, it, the, the steampunk and the um, uh, the steampunk one is sort of ten thousand words underway. The the third novel, the, the Bulgarian one, is, is almost finished. And I've got a fourth one, which is sort of... Um, I've, I've written a few thousand words of it. I've written a kind of outline synopsis, which is a kind of chiclety type thing called Dead Boyfriends. Um, and uh, whether that will see the light of day, I have no idea. But I sort of hope it will. I hope it will, because I, I, I was, I was kind of a quite one of my favourite film genres. Like Connie Willis said in an interview, is, is romantic comedy. So I've always, I've always quite wanted to write a supernatural romantic comedy which doesn't involve vampires. I do not want to write any. Um, uh, teen vampire stories. Thank you very much. The market is flooded with those. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> um, so, I, so I'm trying to write something else uh, along those lines. Well, but the, the steampunk one is, I've, I've, is, I'm hoping something kind of good will happen with that. And I've got some. I've always got ideas on the go. So I tend not to stick to one, you know, to one thing. But equally, if somebody, if a, a big publisher tell, comes and says we want you to write, um, you know. Um, a massive fantasy trilogy. I will do it. <laughs> <laughs> teen, teen vampire. I'm your man. <laughs> John, honestly, it's been lovely having you on board Starship Sova. Thank you so much for coming on board. Oh, it's been a great pleasure, Tony. And I, 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 I just want to say as well that I'm, I'm a regular contributor 
contributor to your forums as well. So people can find me. Uh, um, my my tag is Jack54, um, and so I, I, I kind of put my tuppence worth in every so often well, as well. That's very, that's very kind of you. And I'll put a link on to your site as well so people can pop over. There you go, John. Again, apologies for <laughs> miss, missing you out. So we have the second one in the 12 of Michael Swanick's How to Run a Con. Hello, this is Daga. And I'm Surplus. And we're here to teach you how, how to, to run, run a con. con. Today we address the unofficial slogan of every confidence artist, swindler, grifter, and indeed politician in the world. You can't cheat. An honest man. It's a code to live by. But is it true? More importantly, who first said it? It was an American, of course. Joseph Weil, better known as the Yellow Kid. Uh, he was one of the greats. Indeed he was. He started running short cons as a young man selling Meriwether's Elixir, a medication compounded chiefly of rainwater, and went on to work the wire, the rag, the blow-off, all the big cons there are. He swindled the unwary out of millions, wrote a refreshingly honest autobiography, and lived to be a hundred. An easy conscience will keep you young forever. Quite true. But is it an actual fact that you can't cheat an honest man? Well, have you ever set out to cheat a man and failed? No, but then I'm hardly a typical con man. I exist at the top of my profession. As do I. But if you've never met a man you couldn't cheat, doesn't that simply mean that there are no honest men? Au contraire. In addition to the obvious self-justification of the slogan, it has a deeper meaning. Once you get a mark to thinking about profit, they'll ignore every inconsistency and flaw in your game. Once you've set the match to their greed, they'll burn with the desire to be stung. Okay, so there are people you couldn't cheat. Oh, absolutely. I want you to imagine a fellow as full of rectitude as a Christmas goose is of stuffing. A man who, if the government overpaid his tax refund, would immediately give the excess back. A fellow who wouldn't accept a free drink from a drunken priest. Someone who, if his own children were going hungry and he found a hundred-dollar bill on the street, would immediately turn it into the police. That would be a very hard nut to crack indeed. But not much fun to pal around with. Well, there you have the gist of it. I've never spent much time with such a creature, nor would I care to. But there is a moral here for our listeners. If you think you can't be conned, you're probably wrong. But if you're right, then you really have to loosen up. Amen. That's all for today. This is Surplus. And I'm Daga, teaching you... How, how to, to run, run a con. con. Not that all of our marks have been that charming to be with. Oh, true. There was the brain baron Claus von Chemiker, for one. Oh, that was a... And that is Starships Over 177. Put to bed. I hope you enjoyed it. Do if you want, send us an email, starshipsover at gmail.com. Anything about the show, let us know, please. Until next week, I would just like to say good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one.
Crunch.